Amen. Good morning, morning friends, both here in the room, for you at home. It's great to be together as we continue our series called Distinct, where we've been looking all this over these last few months at the book of James. Uh, and today we come to another challenging bit, uh, and I don't know if you found that as it was being read, there's some pretty hardcore bits in there, so let's see where we get to today on this Mother's Day. Uh, we've got some big stuff to be looking at. One of the most embarrassing moments in any child's life is when you're at school, and instead of putting your hand up and saying, Miss, Miss, you end up saying, Mum or Dad, depending on the teacher. I remember Mrs. Ladbrook. I used to like Mrs. Ladbrook. And then I was faithfully, Miss, Miss, Mum. And she burst out laughing and I wished the desk, those old-fashioned desks with the lids could swallow me up inside. Anyone done that? You at home, anyone done that? Remember the embarrassment. Mum, Dad. Well, apparently there's a new edition of that. I don't know if you've heard what happens now. Instead of teachers being called mom or dad, they're now called Alexa <laughs> or Siri or Hey Google, whatever it might be. Because, of course, if you don't know, Alexa is always listening to you. And so if you want something, you just call out Alexa, and then whatever it might be. Or, hey, Siri, whatever it might be. And anyone's phone's kicking off now. It'd be interesting to see. Well, as we continue our series today, segueing back to the Bible, I think James wants us to be a bit more like Alexa. The passage we had read had two phrases that were repeated twice. Here they are on the screen. Now listen, you, dot, 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 twice. He's got two crucial things that he wants his hearers, both then and now, to listen to. And I want to suggest that whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus, whether church is something that's familiar to you or not, whether God features in your life in a big way or not, these two important things are so crucial for all of us. So now listen to what he's got to say to us. And the first is a very simple thing. James wants us to hear that God is in control and we are not. I can't help feeling that part of the challenge of our moment in the 21st century is partly to do with feeling out of control. Over the last decade, certainly in the Western world after the Second World War, we've been trying our best to rebuild and therefore gain a sense of control that, so that none of the horrors in the first half of the 20th century ever come back trying to control the economy, trying to better our lives, trying to improve conditions, trying to make sure nations unite so that the travesties in the first half of the 20th century never happen again. And yet, in recent years, we've seen a pandemic completely out of our control, flattening the world. The cost of living crisis in much of the world and in our country, out of our control, those bank balances that we've worked so hard to try and keep in control, suddenly costs go sky high. War in Europe, earthquakes on our doorstep, 
massive societal change that just feels out of control let alone the much smaller things in our own personal lives, relationships that once seemed so strong, now faltering. Friendships that seemed so certain, now we haven't spoken to them for years. Our own health out of control, our own emotions all over the place. But James, I think, wants to remind his readers and us today that being out of control is actually a good thing. Let me read again what he says. Now listen, James chapter 4, verse 13. You who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boastings, evil, strong words. But if you cast your kind of idea, your imagination back to the ancient world, where the Roman Empire is flourishing, if you think, therefore, um, business was on the rise, roads were being built for the first time so that people could go places and do business. And so therefore plans were being made to try and make sure life is better. Merchants all across the Middle East and Europe doing business, making plans. We're going to do this tomorrow. They were a nation on the rise and a society on the rise. And a humbling lesson for us in the Western world who spent decades, if not centuries, doing the same. Building our own paths so that we can do business and improve our lot. And yet the key phrase, says James, is this, instead, instead, verse 15, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. Now, this is important in two ways, because I think it impacts how we plan and it impacts how we pray. Firstly, it changes how we plan. Now, James isn't saying you shouldn't plan to do things tomorrow. I know for some of us, that's disappointing. Some of us love, I'm not going to make any plans. I'll just wait and see what happens. James isn't saying that. But what he is saying is don't go against God's ways. What God wants should be central to our plans, not an add-on extra that we pray for his blessing on the things we've already decided. We should say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. Don't be arrogant in your plans because your life is not in your hands. That phrase, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, is something that our culture rails against, isn't it? The idea that we'll be gone. As I was preparing this week on social media, something came up on my feed. I don't know how it came up on my feed, but it was interesting to watch. I saw a clip of a music legend, Otis Redding, on a US TV show in Cleveland, aged 27 years old. The next day, Otis Redding was killed in a plane crash. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And sadly, even within our community, in the wider community, we have experienced that in recent weeks and months. 
And so often in the Western world, we have forgotten this, friends. And James is simply saying, God is interested and God holds your tomorrows. Don't pretend that you can do tomorrow without him. God reigns. He's sovereign. It changes how we plan. If it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. But it also changes how we pray. Do you remember the Lord's prayer when Jesus' disciples ask him, how should we pray? What does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And even Jesus himself, when he's about to go to the cross, he's there on his knees knowing what's ahead of him. He's about to be killed brutally on a cross. He prays this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I used to think that praying that the Lord's will would be done was a sort of cop-out in prayer. That we really want to say what we want and trust and believe for it. And praying that if it's your will, that somehow that's sort of a get-out clause. Might I humbly suggest that praying, Lord, your will be done is the boldest, most courageous prayer that we can ever pray. Because it's saying, God, I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not in control. You are. So if it is your will, Lord, please. It changes how we pray. And then James has this amazing section where he says a verse that I think is fascinating. Verse 17. And it's kind of like a bridge between that, recognizing that God is in control. Therefore, we need to involve him in our plans. And what comes after this. Verse 17, he says this. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. Now, in church world, this is called sins of omission. You may have heard that. You may not have done. Basically, most of us think of sins of commission, things we do that God may or may not be happy with. But actually, James says, also the things that we know we should do that we don't, we omit to do, See, if we know there's good we should do and don't, like involving God in our plans and not, then according to him, that's sin. Now, this has brought home to me in a very practical way recently when somebody within our church community, and he's given me permission to share this story, Karamath, told a story of when he was brought to England illegally aged 12 years old. It was this verse that made him confess to the government that he was in this country illegally and four years later was given permission to stay here. That's amazing. That's putting the Bible into practice, isn't it? When your very existence in this country may be in jeopardy. Wow! James is hard talking here. But that leads us on, therefore, to something that maybe even is more challenging. Not only is God in control, God is also, according to James, the judge. And that's really good news for us. We don't like talking about God being judge. We like talking about God being father, if we've had good father figures in our lives. We like talking about God being love. God being kind and compassionate, absolutely. But God as judge, wow, this is pretty hardcore, Tim, on Mother's Day too. 
strange, isn't it, what some of your earliest memories in life are? Uh, I grew up in Gloucester, uh, and I can remember the first time that I saw a street preacher in King Square in Gloucester, if any of you know it. There was this guy wearing one of those sandwich boards, you know, where they had the kind of Bible verses on walking around preaching boldly, a bit like Homer Simpson here on the screen. And James wants us to remember that there is a God who sees and hears and hears judge. And this is particularly important when it comes to how we use our money. Gulp. He's got some strong words for those who are rich. Let me read them again. Now listen, Alexa. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, the moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Wow. (laughs) Can't wait, we don't put those bits on our fridge, do we? (laughs) Sending you a little encouraging text. (laughs) Your gold's corroding away. What he's simply saying is this, hoarding wealth cannot save you. It cannot protect you. In the same way that the plans of the business people a few verses earlier were outside of their control, so too your wealth may make a better life today, but like everything, it can't necessarily protect you tomorrow. Now, not that I know your circumstances, but I guess that most of us don't think of ourselves as uber wealthy. Certainly at the moment, if not for all our lives. And it can be easy to dismiss this as referring to other people. The Jeff Bezoses of this world, Elon Musk's, the uber wealthy. But I know somebody who was in the world's eyes considered very wealthy. Really good life, had everything you kind of dream of, doing really well. Life was good, sweet, until the test results came back. And I remember that emptiness in their face as suddenly this one thing they'd done so much to protect everything in their world this one thing that money could not do anything about make a nice more comfortable hospital bed but couldn't do anything to stop James urges with a tenderness but a certainty that there is something even more important than financial stability Listen to the words of James John Templeton. In the 20th century, one of the richest people in America set up the Templeton Foundation said this, happiness comes from spiritual wealth, not material wealth. Happiness comes from giving, not getting. If we try hard to bring happiness to others, we cannot stop it from coming to us also. To get joy, we must give it. To keep joy, we must scatter it. That's why here at Riverside, we encourage people, if you're a regular part of the family here, to give to the work of the church here. Yes, to support the stuff, but also for your own sake, so that money doesn't control you. And if you've not started doing that in any meaningful way, we'd love to encourage you to do so. There's information on the way out or on our website for those at home. But there's something else here that's arguably even more challenging than this. Told you it's pretty hardcore. James goes on. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. 
The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Boy, it'd be quite nice to just watch the one show, wouldn't it? Nice, easy thing. James is simply saying, for you who are wealthy, God hears the cries of those you've oppressed. I love that phrase in verse 4. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. That phrase, Lord Almighty, in the original actually refers to the Lord of the heavenly armies. And imagine how the oppressed people in the first century would have heard that. For whom the rich domineers were crushing them. To know that there was a God in heaven who not only heard their cries, thank you Lord, but actually was the God with a heavenly army. And imagine if you've got nowhere to go, no democracy, no voting booth, And you're locked away in sobbing tears, hoping that somebody would come to rescue, to know there was a God in heaven of eternity with a heavenly army of warriors. That begins to give you courage. And maybe for some of us, we need to hear that. I don't know your circumstances, but it could well be there are people here, you have been oppressed in a way That in this life, you're not sure if there can ever be any restoration from it. Friends, the God of the heavenly armies has heard your cries. That changes everything. The God with the warriors that can and do defend you. But of course... It's good news for those who are oppressed. It's challenging for those doing the oppressing. Without getting too party political about it, and please hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. One of the biggest issues we face in the UK at the moment is around asylum seekers and all of those discussions. And of course, it's hugely complex, and I'm not getting into specific policies. But I think we can all agree on something. Saw an article on Friday in the Times. Here it is. Our interests count more than migrant needs. Regardless of different policies, I think a follower of Jesus can all agree that we are not more important than anyone else. So what's the solution to all of this? What if we are the oppressed? What if the one we are, the one's been crying out for this God with the heavenly armies to do something? Well, James's last words give us such encouragement. This is what he says. So be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. But the judge is standing at the door. Patience. 
How are you on your laptop when the spinning ball of death comes? Or you're watching something on TV and it starts buffering. You're halfway through the one show, whatever it is, and the spinning wheel comes. How long do you leave it before you suddenly start trying to come on? What's happening with the router? Do we turn off the TV? What's happening? Are you patient then? Patience is a virtue that we try and teach younger generations but find so difficult ourselves, isn't it? Interestingly, reading something in Psychology Today said this, Today more than ever, patience is a forgotten virtue and things are only getting worse. Now, now, now! And yet James reminds followers of Jesus, patience is worth it because God is judge and Jesus is coming back and that idea that he's the judge we find difficult but for those who have nowhere else to turn may I suggest that the fact that there is a God who does see who does hear and is judge is the best news ever I am in our offices, we have a little chalkboard, sometimes writing interesting things on it. And we had written on this chalkboard, Jesus is here. And then somebody's written, look busy. <laughs> <laughs> As I come to a close, and especially today for some of us, we need to hear that there is a God who has heard your cries. He's seen what's been done to you, against you. He's seen your circumstances that you wished were different. And he's coming back. So be patient, friends. Be patient. The Lord of the heavenly armies has got you. Holds you in his hands. And so let's cling on. Stand firm to the one who's got us.